Amen. We continue today in our series. We're in week three of our series called All Men Are Created Equal. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm putting on my professor's cap this week, even got out the jacket, right? Um, you're going to have to hang with me uh, because we're wading deep into uh, some material as well as much deeper into some political incorrectness. Uh, we've had a little bit of that that we've introduced to you over the past couple of weeks. We're going to jump off into the deep end this week. Um, I hope that you can hang with me. Um, the first uh, item that I want to bring to your attention is a guy by the name of Justice Roger Taney. I have a picture of him here. Um, Justice Roger Taney, at least it's a statue of him. Justice Roger Taney was the Supreme Court justice who wrote the decision known as the Dred Scott decision. Um, before Justice Taney, in front of him, was the uh, decision about what did the Constitution defend the rights of slave owners to have slaves. And so Justice Taney uh, gathered together facts, gathered together data, and uh, came up with his conclusion. Now, before I share with you his conclusion, I want you to know that Justice Taney was a Democrat and he was a Southerner. He lived in Virginia. He himself owned slaves. However, he freed his slaves. He emancipated his slaves. He, was, he became an abolitionist. He believed that slavery was an evil. It was a blight on the face of the earth. Um, and yet, the decision that he came up with is that the Constitution itself did defend the rights of slave owners to own slaves. Um, and you say, well, how did he arrive at this conclusion? Well, Justice Taney uh, decided that 30, or saw that 30 out of the 55 framers of the Constitution, so you had 39 signers of the Constitution, you had 55 representatives who went to the Second Constitutional Congress, and out of those 55, he noted that 30 of them were slave owners. So that was the issue was, does the Constitution defend the rights of slave owners? And then secondly, he, decide, he made his conclusion based on his, his facts that 30 of the 55 framers were slave owners. So Taney, after gazing over history's shoulder, concluded that the right to own slaves is, and I quote, expressly affirmed in the Constitution, and that blacks have no rights which the white man was bound to respect, end of quote. Um, now, you can understand why this would incite people in today's world that this guy, Justice Taney, comes up with this decision. Again, he was an originalist justice. He, didn't, he was an abolitionist himself, but he didn't believe it was his place as a judge to legislate from the bench. He felt like legislators ought to be the ones who are writing the laws. And so he went back to say, what was the original intent of the, uh, of the writers of the Constitution, of the framers of the Constitution? He believed that they defended the rights of of slave owners. Now you can understand why in 2017, a couple of weeks after Charlottesville had happened, that this picture that you see here that appeared in the Baltimore Sun newspaper uh, at 2 a.m. in the morning that this statue was removed from its place there in the Baltimore uh, Courthouse Square. Um, because protesters had said, look, this guy wrote the Dred Scott decision. We cannot have a statue of him uh, honoring him, even though he was an abolitionist himself. Well, what does all that mean? It means that the progressive liberals of our day would be correct, that the founding fathers of our nation were bigots and were racists. At least that's what they presume. That the framers of the Constitution did not believe that all men were created equal, that people of color are lesser than uh, those who are white, who, would be, who they would have considered as superior beings. Or at least, again, that is the modern assumption of what the founding fathers believed. Therefore, the documents that they wrote, they would, con they would conclude, the Constitution is inherently racist. 
And the question that we want to take up today is, was Justice Taney correct in his conclusion that the Constitution was a racist document, and therefore those documents that frame out our country, that give us rights and privileges and liberties, that, friends, that those documents themselves were racist, and therefore, like the progressives are leading us to do, we need to completely rework everything, we need to change our system, and we need to move forward from there. Our text that's going to inform... Everybody okay? I told you we're going in the deep water today, all right? Take a deep breath. It's all good. Um, The text that's going to inform us today is Job chapter 31, verses 13 through 15. As is our custom here, I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Again, we stand to our feet to remind ourselves, not just out of respect for God's Word, but also to be reminded that this is where truth comes from. By the way, you can see Gordon's got a new Bible. This is my ESV version of the Bible. I've been hunting around with it for about eight months. I finally go ahead and put some money down and buy a new one, because that's what we're going to go forward with here If you've heard me preach about translation stuff in the past, then you know what I'm talking about. If not, catch me after church. All right, Job chapter 31, we'll be reading verses 13 through 15. Here we go. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him... And did not one fashion us in the womb? You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so let's just kind of walk through these verses together. We'll start at verse 13. Job writes, remember this is Job uh, the philosopher, Job the guy who had all of his his, uh, earthly possessions taken from him. Um, God later restored that. Uh, But he's in the midst of his crisis right here. He says, verse 13, If I have rejected the cause of my manservant, just ignored the complaint that they brought to me about some working conditions, if I just ignored that or that of my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, like your working conditions are just too tough, you're getting us for too many hours a day, the sun's too hot, you're putting us out there in the heat of the sun, whatever the complaint was, when I, if I were to ignore that, verse 14, if I did that, what then shall I do when God rises up against me? When God comes to say to me, hey, did you not know that the conditions that you were asking your manservant and your maidservant to endure were unfair, were unjust? Do you not know that? So when God comes to me and makes inquiry, what should I answer him? What should I say to God? What response, what reply might I possibly be able to give God if he comes to me with this data, with this information that I've ignored those who were working for me? Now, so what's Job saying? He's saying that if he fails to hear the complaint of his servant, someone whose social standing, right, is lesser than his own, someone whose society looks at in a pecking order and says, well, this is somebody who works for you, Job. Why would you even need to entertain their complaint? Job, just dismiss them outright. Just tell them to bug off. Tell them to get lost. They're your employee. You don't have to sit there and listen to this, Job. And so Job says, if I take that attitude, if I take that approach in my relationship with this person, if I dismiss them out of my presence, here is what I can expect. Verse 14. God will rise up against me. That's what I can expect. God will make an inquiry. He will question me. Have you been fair, Job? Have you been equitable, Job, in your treatment of your manservant, of your maidservant? And if I haven't, if I've dismissed them, verse 14, end of verse 14, what shall I answer him? Job knows, friends, that all men are created equal. 
that we may occupy different roles in this world, but in God's, God's eyes, every one of us is of infinite worth and of infinite value in God's eyes. No matter the size or the scope of a person's contribution, God looks at each and every human being as a person of great and infinite worth and value. Even Job, with all that he had, even Job, with all the possessions that he had, with all the, all the power that he had, Job recognized that everybody who, employ, who he employed, everybody that he interacted with every day had a, was a person of infinite worth and of infinite value in God's eyes. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in many of his writings. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither slave, I'm sorry, there is neither Jew nor Greek, no difference between the two. Between the two. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, no difference between the two. There's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, and if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. doesn't matter what your status is in life. doesn't matter what your importance is in life according to the social pecking order of things. All of us are heirs of God's promise if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's noting here. <clears throat> Over in Romans, Paul writes, Romans chapter 10 and verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't matter what our station is in life. It doesn't matter what our skin color is in life. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. In the book of Revelation, John looks into heaven and he sees the nations of the earth all gathered together and he remarks about part of what he sees. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, John writes, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Friends, a portrait that we have in heaven is that John sees of the people who are gathered there in heaven is a portrait of people representing every nation, every tongue, every skin color, every background from all across the face of the earth. Heaven will be a multicultural experience. The faces in heaven, the Bible declares, will be black and brown and yellow and red and white from every tribe and nation across the face of the earth. Friends, the Bible declares that we had better get used to hanging around people who come from different backgrounds than us, people who come from different nationalities than us, people that have different skin color than us, because we better get used to it now, because when we get to heaven, we're going to be hanging out with them for all of eternity. Amen? That's what John's saying here. The Bible makes no distinction of persons just because one man has a large piggy bank and another does not. Um, and so, in other words, what, what the Bible is clearly saying here <clears throat> is that... Um, that in God's eyes, we are all the same. The world may make distinctions like that, but God does not. Job does not. Paul does not. Heaven does not. And thank goodness that the Lord Jesus himself does not. Job chapter 31 and verse 15 said, Did not God who made me in the womb also make my servants? Job recognizes the infinite worth and the infinite value that every person on the planet has. Okay, well, that's our treatment of this topic for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask the question that we ask every week around here, the most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You know, I appreciate the little story there about Job. It's good, good, good to know where Job fell on things and good to see where Paul had to say, I agree with what they're saying, but we don't have Jim Crow laws. 
in America anymore that separate us, that legally, that push people aside, that segregate things. So, you know, life's more blended, life's more diverse, life's more multicultural now. So what difference does any of this make to me? And what does this have to do with the Constitution, right? Well, let me see if I can answer that. It's a really great question. Justice Taney, um, the Supreme Court justice who came up with the Dred Scott decision, uh, made the decision that the founding fathers were racist, that the founding fathers had created a document that put in its in ink, uh, that all persons were not equal, that all persons were not of equal value. But the question is, is that really true? Is, was Justice Taney correct in his assessment of the situation? Well, enter Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln, being a lawyer, researched the view of the founding fathers concerning blacks, and he came up with a very different conclusion than Taney came up with. In fact, he came up with something directly opposite. Taney was going one direction, Lincoln was going absolutely in the opposite direction. Um, and how he read and understood the Constitution. Lincoln did not accept that the signers of the Constitution were racist and white supremacists. Lincoln believed, men, believed the, the per- people who were the framers of the Constitution to be men of great virtue, to be men of great nobility. He believed that when Thomas Jefferson wrote the words, all men are created equal, that he was using the term in an inclusive manner, that he did not, as my tour guide at Monticello said, have in mind white land-owning males. That that's not who he was talking about when he said all men are created equal, but rather Lincoln saw it as an inclusive term and that Thomas Jefferson intended it to be an inclusive term. Lincoln did not want to put moral distance between himself and the framers of the Constitution, between himself and the people who founded this great nation. Lincoln called himself not a progressive Okay, progressives, are, you hear that term thrown around in our culture today, progressives are people who want to turn over and upturn and, and uh, erode and build back something new because they believe that the system is rigged, they believe that the system that we have in place is inherently flawed, and so they want to uproot it, and they want to do something totally different. That's what a progressive wants to do. Lincoln, indifferently, called himself a conservative. Lincoln said, I want to preserve, I want to conserve what is there, what is in place, because it's not just something of value, but it's something that is true and righteous, as he saw it. But again, Lincoln, uh, you know, he was a conservative, and so Lincoln said, and this quote comes to you from um, his Cooper Union address. The Cooper, you can look, Google it later if you want to listen to somebody else say it online, but anyhow, or you can read it online, but it's called the Cooper Union Address, and it was an address that he gave in a debate between himself and a guy named Douglas. This is in Indiana, or in Illinois. He was uh, uh, seeking a, a term as a senator, and he ended up losing, but two years later um, in his run for the presidency, he would win the presidency. Um, and it was because of this address that he made, the Cooper Union Address, I want to say in 1858, but don't quote me on that, uh, that Lincoln ends up becoming uh, the, the, the Republican candidate uh, for president. He says in his Cooper Union address, he says <clears throat> about the conservative thing, he says, you say, talking to his Democrat uh, opponent, uh, Douglas, he says, you say that you are a conservative, eminently conservative, while we, myself and my Republican colleagues, are revolutionary and are destructive in, or something of the sort. We stick to and contend for the identical old policy on the point in controversy, that is, on abolition, which was adopted by our fathers who framed the government. But you are unanimous in rejecting and denouncing the policy of our fathers. Do you see what Lincoln's saying here? He's saying here that the people who wrote the Constitution did not put in the Constitution the right to own slaves. He's saying that Tanny had it all wrong. 
In fact, the, uh, the Constitution goes in the absolute opposite direction. He says that the Constitution did grant rights to all persons in the United States, regardless of the color of their skin. Or, or skin. You say, Gordon, well, that's really great, but how did Lincoln come to believe this? I mean, it almost sounds like it's kind of a far-fetched idea that he comes up with. Well, let me walk you through his rationale. He gives his rationale in that Cooper Union address. Again, you can check it out online yourself. He says, Lincoln says, you know, I began to research the people who signed the Constitution. Remember, there's 39 persons who signed the Constitution, 55 that came to, as representatives to the Constitutional Congress. 39 of them ended up signing the Constitution. He says, out of those 39, okay, I got a little slide for you here, it's some voting logs of these guys. He starts walking us through those 39 signers. Of, I told you it was a lot to take in this morning. Hang with me. He says, out of those 39 signers of the Constitution, um, he, he wants to track some of their votes on the issue of slavery. So he says, hey, look, on one occasion in 1784, four of the signers of the Constitution, of the 39, four of the 39, voted on a bill that would ban slavery in the western territories of America. So as America began to grow and began to expand westward across the Mississippi River, the decision came before the Congress, are we going to allow slavery into these new territories? Y'all follow me? All right, so we've already got it in the south. Are we going to allow it to continue in these new territories? So four of the signers of the 39 had an opportunity to vote on that issue, just four of them, and he notes that three out of the four voted to ban slavery in the new territories. And so Lincoln's starting to build his tally here of those who were of the 39 who believed in, uh, who were against slavery. Three years later, a similar Northwest prohibition came up for consideration, and this time two more future signers of the Constitution had an opportunity to vote to ban slavery, and they voted to ban slavery. So three of the four in 1784 voted to ban slavery. Now two more, different names, because he lists off all the names in his speech. You know that he's not double counting. So two more, he adds to the tally, says, hey, look, these guys voted to ban slavery as well, because they believed it to be evil. Three years later, a similar North, I'm sorry, I already said that. When Lincoln gets done making his trip through the voting logs of Congress, tracking these 39 guys and different votes that they would have taken on the issue of slavery, Lincoln says, hey, when it was presented to them, the opportunity to present to them, he says 23 out of the 39 signers of the Constitution, before and after the Constitution was written, had an opportunity to vote on the issue of slavery, whether or not to allow it. And 21 out of those 23 that had the opportunity to vote, right, 21 out of the 23 voted to ban slavery. Now, that's not all 39. That's just 23 out of the 39 had an opportunity to vote, but an overwhelming majority voted to ban slavery. He says out of the 16 others, right, so 23 plus 16 to get to 39, he says out of the 16 others, 15 of those 16 who never had an opportunity to vote on the issue of slavery were known abolitionists. People like James Hamilton, people like, um, I'm sorry, Alexander Hamilton, people like Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was the president of the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society. And he says that 15 out of the 16 signers who never had an opportunity to vote on the issue of slavery were known abolitionists. So the tally, the final tally looks like this. 21 out of the 23 voted in favor of ab abolishing slavery in the new territories. 15 of the 16 who did not cast votes were known abolitionists. So that's quite a reversal from what Justice Taney had concluded. Justice Taney just looked at, hey, look, 30 out of the 55 were slave owners, so it must be that they were all white supremacists. They were all in favor of slavery. That's a but it raises a gigantic question, and that is, if, if so many 
if 36 out of the 39 were against slavery, why didn't they write into the Constitution the abolition of it? Why didn't they make it unlawful? Why didn't they make it? And that day, when they had the opportunity and the Constitution was being formed, why didn't they say, this is the end of slavery in America, right? Done. Why didn't they do that? Well, for the answer, let's turn to the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence. It says, remember Thomas Jefferson, a former slave owner, wrote these words. He said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable rights, again, come from your creator. They come from God. They're not rights that are given to you by your government. They're not rights that are given to you by people. They're rights that are given to you by God, and so the government must recognize those. <clears throat> that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers, and here's our line we want to spend a little time with, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. That is, that, uh, that phrase, the consent of the governed, is basically American democracy in a nutshell. Uh, the idea that we are not ruled by a monarch, the idea that we're not ruled by a dictator, that we're not ruled by elites in Washington, but rather that they go as representatives of us, that's what they're supposed to be doing, go as representatives of us, and therefore are to execute on the will of the people. Right? They're, they're there by the consent, by your consent by the consent of the governed. And our government exists not to do its own will, that we are not ruled by a monarch or a dictator, but rather that our government exists to do the will of the people. <clears throat> um, at the time that the Constitution was being written, slavery as a whole across America uh, was not just tolerated, but it was actually politically would have been supported. I mean, there was parts of the country that wanted it gone, as a majority, as a whole, right, because they're there by the consent of the governed, uh, the majority of the American population was okay with slavery as a practice. We're, we're okay with its continuing. And so if, you're, if, if the representatives of our government were to say, hey, look, we're ending slavery right now, they're going against the consent of the governed, which is at the very start of the nation, an undermining of our democracy. And so they knew that they had to put things in place in hopes of a day where things would come to the eventual end of slavery. Now think about this as well. If I'm at the Second Constitutional Congress, I'm Ben Franklin, and I'm trying to get the signature of a representative from Virginia where slavery is widely practiced, or I'm trying to get the signature of a representative from Alabama where slavery is widely practiced, and I'm telling him, look, we're on a right into the Constitution that slavery is to be banned. That guy's going to go, there's no way I can sign that. Uh, perhaps because he had slaves himself, or he knows that if he was to sign that, that the people wouldn't support it. And so if I'm going to get his signature on this Constitution to form a united state, right? Because that's what their aim is, to form a united state then I, as Ben Franklin, am going to have to make some compromises. I'm going to have to make some concessions at that Second Constitutional Congress. Either I compromise and I permit slavery for the time being, or I don't get that representative signature. I don't get my United States. I might get three states. I might get five states. I may end up with 13 colonies that still stay the way they are. That stay the way they are. And so they compromise. And the evidence of their compromise is written in ink in the Constitution. You can see it in Article 1, 
section 2. Here's a slide that shows it. It says, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers. So in other words, the number of delegates that I get to send to Congress, the number of delegates that I get to send to represent me, um, is dependent upon the number of people in a census where we count the people in Alabama, where we count the people in Virginia, where we count the people in Georgia, and so on. And so by the number of people that we have, our population, I then get to send that many more representatives from my state. Um, and so here's what they did. It, it, it continues. It says, so we have this representative number, which shall be determined. How do we determine how many people will get to represent us? By adding the whole number of free persons. So every person in the, in your, in the state of Alabama is one person and the total number of three-fifths of all other persons, and those other persons are slaves. So slaves counted as three-fifths of a person, and free people counted as one whole number. And so when you add all that up, then you get to figure out how many representatives you get. You say, Gordon, you just confirmed that the Constitution's racist. See that? They counted the slaves as three-fifths of a person. Oh, no, 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 no. Got it completely wrong. And this has been, I mean, I even thought this myself for a long time, People have missed what they're doing here by saying that the slaves count as three-fifths of a person. Let me walk into this together. Um, to limit the number of delegates that a slave-owning southern state could send, right? Because the folks in New Hampshire didn't want the folks in Alabama to have more say than they did. They wanted to limit the number of votes that these southern states could bring. In order to do that, they made a compromise. And the compromise, because the slave states wanted all their slaves to count as one whole person. That means I get that many more representatives. So, but the, the, the non-slave owning, the northern states wanted, the Yankee folks, wanted the slaves to count as zero. They wanted them to count as none. Because then again, that's less representatives coming from those southern states. We limit their power. So they came up with a compromise, and their compromise was, okay, because we want to get your signature on the document because we want a united state, a more perfect union eventually. And in order to get there, we're going to allow you to count your slaves as three-fifths of a person rather than as one whole number. So it, again, limits the number of representatives, but gives the southern states enough they were willing to agree with and go forward with. It's just pure politics. That's all Article One, Section 2 is, just pure politics. It, has, it says nothing about the inherent value of persons. And yet, in our culture today, some of our history books, some of the stuff that you may hear in classes, in college courses, <clears throat> it teaches a very different perspective of what's going on when the Constitution was being, well, a different perspective of that Article 1, Section 2, because they're not going into what's happening on the ground. They're not doing historical, contextual work at the time when the Constitution was being written. So what did they decide? Again, they compromised that slaves would be counted but at a reduced value of three-fifths of a person. This, was not so that the, this wasn't what the northern abolitionists wanted, but they were willing to make that compromise in order to bring the southern states into the Union. About this concession, a former slave himself who grew up in Easton, Maryland, where much of my family lives today, he grew up on the Miles River um, in an area there um, on, the, on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay, and Frederick Douglass writes these words, he says, about that compromise, he said, 
By keeping the slave-owning South in the Union, the founders enabled Northern political pressure to work against slavery. Douglas continues, I am therefore for drawing the bond of union, bringing these nations together more closely, he said, and bringing the slave states more completely under the power of the free states. In other words, he saw this compromise as a good first step to get the southern slave-owning states into the Union where the Union could begin to work on what's happening down there and eventually could eradicate it. If the southern states had not entered into the Union, the southern states would have been left in isolation, and the future of the black folks who lived in the South would have been continued imprisonment for many, many, many generations to come. Um, let me make one final point about all this, and then we'll wrap up. Slavery was not introduced in America by the founding fathers of our nation. King George is who we have to thank for that. Okay? Our founding fathers were merely at a point in history where they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this? How, how do we handle this? How do we move forward? How do we bring this union together and then move forward as one country? What the founding fathers were trying to do was to bring together the 13 colonies to form a more perfect union, which many of them knew would one day result in the eventual abolition of slavery, among many other positive results. In other words, the founders believed that slavery was an evil. We see this in Lincoln's own reckoning of the signers of the Constitution. Believed that slavery was an evil that they must tolerate in the short term in the hopes of its future removal. If they had pushed for its abolition at the founding of the country, they would have left the slaves in prison, perhaps for many, many, many more years. Um, regarding Jefferson and slavery, Thomas Jefferson, in 1779, Thomas Jefferson put forward a vote in the Virginia colony to end slavery in the Virginia colony, something that he knew would directly affect his own livelihood and his own family. Um, that vote did not pass. In 1784, he proposed in Congress a law that would ban slavery from the entire Western territory of the United States. The vote failed by, the proposal failed by one vote. And in 1807, President Jefferson had success, then President Jefferson in 1807, had success in publicly supporting the abolition of the slave trade and put laws in place that would, that would end the transatlantic trade that was coming from Africa that would put to an end the introducing of new slaves into the colonies. Uh, it didn't abolish slavery in the colonies, didn't abolish slavery in the southern states, but it did put an end in 1807, the transatlantic slave uh, trade that was going on from Africa. So let me, let me ask you, are all men created equal? The vast majority of the founders of our country thought so. And they knew in time that this atrocity would be and must be eradicated. Friends, I pray that what we've shared today has been enlightening for you. I pray that what we've shared today has shaped and affirmed your view of this great nation that we live in. And I hope also, my prayer is, uh, that what we've shared here today has been a reminder of the intrinsic worth and value that the Bible teaches of all persons. As Job said, Job chapter 31 and verse 15, he said, did not God who made me in the womb also make my servants? And did not God fashion the both of us in the womb? Let's pray.
Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We thank you for truth spoken into our hearts, spoken into our mind that will shape the way we raise our children, that will shape the way we interact with people in our everyday life. Each and every set of eyes we, get, we, we come into contact with, Lord, are persons of intrinsic worth and value. Lord, let your Holy Spirit sink that deep down into our hearts. Lord, if there is anything other than that thought, seeds of prejudice, seeds of hatred in our heart, Lord, may your Holy Spirit begin a work in us and extract that such that every life we encounter, young and old and everyone in between, we would see as persons of great value and worth. If, they, if every life matters to you, then Lord, every life matters to us. We're thankful, Lord, as we gather around this table to celebrate your broken body and your shed blood. We're reminded through your giving of yourself, through the, your willingness to go to the cross of our value, of our worth in your eyes. Lord, you loved us that much. Stir in our hearts. Encourage us in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's holy name.